Welcome to the OCC Podcast. Whether you're listening to this at home, on the road, at work, or in the gym, we're so glad you decided to join us as we study God's Word together. We hope and pray that through this ministry, you will grow in your relationship with God as well as become a chair for disciple maker. But for now, sit back and let us help you see how the Bible applies to your life today. Wow, I think that's more intense up here on the stage. It's like, okay, let's go. Wow, okay, we are ready. It's good to be with you all. I'm so glad you're here. It's good to be with those online. Welcome. My name is Andrew. I'm the student ministries pastor here at Orchards, and it is just an honor to be able to open God's word um, today with you all. Now, today we're going to jump right in to our text here, and we are back in uh, the book of Acts and our different series that we've been in as we jump into Acts 19. Now, last week, Pastor James walked us through the end of Paul's second missionary journey and then the beginning of his third, as well as we were introduced to a guy named Apollos. Now, Paul's second missionary journey ended with him in Antioch and Syria, and then we saw in verse 23 last week, Paul begins his third missionary journey as he makes his way from Antioch and Syria. Now, this is Paul's last missionary journey. A little spoiler alert for you here. This last missionary journey is before he is eventually arrested and then ultimately taken to Rome and to his death. And so where we're at is, is kind of the, the final stages of this as he moves through his third missionary journey. Today we find that Apollos is still in Corinth and Paul makes his way back to Ephesus. Paul traveled to Caesarea, then Phrygia, through Colossae, and then Laodicea and Hierapolis, where later Pauline churches would be established. And then Paul makes his way back to Ephesus where we find ourselves today. Once Paul gets to Ephesus, God continues to do incredible things in and through Paul as God grows and expands his name and the church. Through this passage today, we will see how nothing stops the gospel and the growth of God's church. So if you will, join me in Acts 19, starting in verse 1. We're going to start doing a little reading. It'll be up on the screen if you want to follow along there. Acts 19, starting in verse 1, says this. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. He said, Into what then were you baptized? And he said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul had laid, and when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Now we're going to pause there for a second because there's a lot happening in these first seven verses that I want to make sure we grasp here. So, First seven verses, as we kind of talked about briefly, Paul makes his way back to Ephesus and comes across 12 disciples. He asked these disciples if they had been given the Holy Spirit, but they respond they didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And Paul inquires, well, then how, who were you baptized into? Like, how were you baptized? He's trying to understand. He's, he's trying to grasp where he's at with these, these 12 guys which after he asked, well, where, how were you baptized? They respond, they were baptized by John the Baptist. 
Paul explains that John, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance and preparation for the coming Messiah, Jesus. Now, if you remember, John the Baptist was, uh, was Jesus' cousin. And G- John's role was that he went down to the Jordan River. There he called for people's repentance and then baptized them in the Jordan. John the Baptist was also the one that baptized Jesus in the Jordan in Matthew 3. So after Paul explains to these men that they have pretty much missed Jesus, they have missed the Holy Spirit, and that they need to be baptized into Jesus' name, Paul baptizes them in the name of Jesus and lays hands on them to receive the Holy Spirit. Once they've received the Holy Spirit, they speak in tongues and prophesy. It's an incredible scene. But there's a lot here. Now, at first glance, this is kind of a weird section. And it seems like it doesn't entirely fit. And as I was studying this section, I really struggled to fully understand what was happening here. And so what I'd love to do just for a couple minutes here is I would love to bring you kind of into my struggle and how God kind of walked me through that struggle. In uh, college ministry, we, are just, we just finished a series called The Truth Project. And, and the main speaker on The Truth Project multiple times talked about how, you know, different sections in his life, he, he found that he was kind of in almost this like spiritual like cocoon or, or time that he needed to kind of button, button, batten down the hatches and figure out what's going on. And then he kind of came back out of it. Well, I would love to kind of welcome you into that process of this last week, and then we'll go through it together. Sounds good? Okay. When I go through these passages that are struggle, that are tough, I often ask questions, and my, my questions bring about the research of, of where we kind of go. And so a couple questions that I asked, and these questions help me then to understand what's going on. First question I asked is this. You'll see it up on the screen. Question is, are these disciples of John born-again believers? I think this question is essential. And my answer is No. When you look at the interaction between Paul and these disciples, we can understand that Paul was most likely hanging out with these guys. Came across these guys maybe in the temple, in a house, wherever. And and he's interacting with these guys and and begins to ask questions. He's trying to determine who they are, what do they know, what do they believe. and, And he's trying to determine what kind of interaction does he need to have with these guys. Does it need to be a, you know, evangelistic interaction? Is it a brother in Christ interaction? And so Paul begins by asking if they knew of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And so Paul asks, well, did you get the Holy Spirit? Do you have the Holy Spirit when you believed? Paul starts by assuming that they knew of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. When the disciples respond that they've never heard of the Holy Spirit, that they don't have it, they've never heard of it, Paul knows exactly where they're at and what kind of interaction he needs to have with these guys. This sets the foundation for what comes in the next several verses. By these men answering that they've never heard of the Holy Spirit, in turn means they've completely missed Acts 2 and Pentecost. These men are living um, and operating under a pre-Jesus understanding. They're living under John the Baptist's teaching, and they're still waiting for the Messiah. They've completely missed the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry, as well as they've missed the moment that John baptizes Jesus in the Jordan. Because these men have missed these key events, I would confidently say that these men aren't born again and regenerated believers. They don't have the Holy Spirit and haven't placed their faith and belief in Jesus. In fact, I'm not even sure they truly have heard of Jesus. They're missing a huge portion of the gospel, of the saving truth of the gospel. As well as we can also say 
that we're not 100% sure how strong of followers of John the Baptist they are. Because John the Baptist, Baptist baptizes Jesus in Matthew 3 and makes a very clear claim to who Jesus is. As well as for these disciples of John to have never heard of the Holy Spirit or known that there was a Holy Spirit is odd. Jesus, John spoke of the Holy Spirit in Matthew 3.11 as he's talking with the Pharisees and Sadducees. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In many ways, we're not even sure how strong of followers of John the Baptist these 12 guys are. Second question I asked in this process has to do with verses four through six. When you look at verses four through six, the, the order that happens in these verses, the order of events seems odd. And I, the question that I came to is, why are the events in verses four through six in the order that we see? Let me explain this question. When you look at these verses, we see that Paul baptizes them and then lays hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. This is an interesting order when elsewhere in scripture we see that people profess faith in Jesus and then immediately they receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit after that. If you look at Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, it says this, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the, to the praise of his glory. And it seems when you look at verses four through six that the order is different. Here it seems that men, the men are baptized and then they receive the Holy Spirit. So why is that? What's happening here? To answer this question, we need to look a little more closely at Acts 19.4. In verse four, we see that Paul tells these men that Jesus has come and that he is the one. Meaning Paul is telling them that they've missed the Messiah and that Jesus in fact is that Messiah. This would be mind-blowing to these guys. The one they've been waiting for has come and they missed him. This is Paul sharing the gospel with these men. We can infer that these men believed and accepted the truth of the gospel and were changed by it. And then they were immediately baptized. But still we come to the question of why they received the Holy Spirit after they professed and were baptized. Still the order is confusing. Let me answer the question this way. Last week, Pastor James mentioned that Acts is the book of transitions, meaning that before Acts, we have all these little groups that want to be part of the universal church, but they've missed Jesus. So Acts is taking all these groups and unifying them under Jesus. Acts is bringing the church together under one name. We can see evidence of this in three other places in Acts. In Acts 2, as the Holy Spirit is given, all the disciples and followers of Jesus are united with the Holy Spirit. And then immediately they speak in tongues and 3,000 Jews believe, are saved, and are baptized and given the Holy Spirit. We see this idea once again in Acts 8 with the Samaritans. The apostles laid hands on them and they were united with Jesus and the rest of the growing church. Then thirdly, in Acts 10, as Peter leads the Gentiles to know Jesus, they are united with Jesus and the ever-growing church. Finally, we see the same thing happen here in Acts 19 with these 12 disciples of John the Baptist. Think about it this way. Acts 2 is Pentecost and the giving of the Holy Spirit. Then Acts 8, Acts 10, and Acts 19 are all sequels of Pentecost. 
the giving of the Holy Spirit, which brought unity to the church under Jesus. Pastor James and I were, were talking through this passage and trying to t- figure out kind of what's going on here and figure out how to explain it. And he made a joke about how Acts 8, Acts 10, and Acts 19 are, are you know, sequels and how they're kind of like, you know, Fast and the Furious 4 through 15 or whatever it is, right? Or, you know, Rocky 4. I mean, they're sequels to what's happening in, at Acts 2. They're what's coming next. And so we see little bits of Acts 2, little bits of Pentecost happening in Acts 8, Acts 10, and Acts 19. So we see similar things happening in those passages. Acts 2 and Pentecost sets the foundation for what happens next. And Acts 19 is just a sequel to what happens in Acts 2. All, these, all four of these incredible moments of the giving of the Holy Spirit are evidence of the welcoming of these different groups into the church. Which is why in Acts 19, verse 6, Paul lays hands on these new converts as a symbolic way of approval and acceptance into the church which was followed by the Holy Spirit, which marked these men as now regenerated and disciples of Jesus. After these men are given the Holy Spirit, they speak in tongues and prophesy, which brings us to my final question I asked in my research. And this question is, why did these men speak in tongues and prophesy? To answer this question, it comes back to the idea that Acts 19 is a sequel to Pentecost. At Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was given, disciples of Jesus spoke in tongues and prophesied. So here, this is a sequel of Pentecost, and thus the new disciples of Jesus speak in tongues and prophesy as a sign of being given the Holy Spirit. Throughout the New Testament, as the church is growing and being formed, we see moments of followers of Jesus speaking in tongues, prophesying, and doing incredible miracles. These events would be called the sign gifts today. When you look at these incredible events, God used sign gifts to ratify or bring evidence to the gospel so that people would be saved and the church would grow. However, when you look at the church today, we have the written gospel, right? Scripture, scripture's written down and the gospel is written itself. The biblical canon itself is closed. Nothing else is being added to the gospel and to scripture. In fact, scripture brings evidence to itself. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4 builds on this idea as it says this, his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is the world because of sinful desire. You see, the gospel's proof enough. The gospel is evidence to itself that it is true and enough to save, redeem, and regenerate believers. Thus, here in OCC, we believe the sign gifts are not normal in modern day church because the gospel and scripture brings evidence to itself. However, please hear this. I'm not putting God in a box and saying that he, what he can or cannot do. If God chooses to use signs, wonders, and miracles, he can. Absolutely, no questions asked. And I believe he does at times in the modern day church. But I do believe that they are not the normal way that God has chosen to work now. 
We see these kind of incredible miracle signs and wonders happening in places where the written gospel has yet to be reached or translated, bringing evidence and ratifying the gospel. One of the biggest challenges the modern day church, I think, needs to hear is this, that because the sign gifts are not normal, we shouldn't be looking for them or trying to find ways to make them happen. If God chooses to work that way, he will. He doesn't need us to try to make them happen or conjure them. He doesn't need our help in these incredible miracles. Another takeaway from these first seven verses is this question. Are we true disciples of Jesus or just followers of someone else and that are missing part of the true gospel? I think of many people that I've come across over the years who claim to be Christians but don't pass the fruit test or have missed a key part of the gospel like missing part, the fact that Jesus has come or calls for repentance and, is, and that he's offering salvation from sins. Friends, do we claim Christ and are truly a follower of him that truly know the gospel, live by it, and are changed by it? The very truth that who we were before, what Jesus did, that we've accepted it, that we believe in who we are now, is that what changes us? Are we missing any part of the gospel? These 12 men were missing a huge part of the gospel. And once Paul explained it to them, they accepted it wholeheartedly and were born again. And I want to say this. If you aren't sure what the gospel is or feel that you may be missing part of the gospel, at the end, we encourage people to go to the cross. And we'd love to invite you to come there and, and talk with someone, pray with someone. They'd hap- be happy to walk through this and, and pray with you. I encourage you to take advantage of that. Now, this brings us to our next section of scripture today. If you join me back in Acts 19, starting in verse 8, we're going to continue reading. Verse 8 says this, And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn, became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Verse 11, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried to the sick, carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. So while in Ephesus, Paul accepts the invitation he received back in Acts 18, 19 to stay in the Ephesian temple and to teach. Paul stayed there for three months. And during this time, Paul spoke boldly about who Jesus is and what he's done in the gospel itself. However, we're told in verse nine that the end of three months, some of the Jews resisted Paul and spoke evil of the way, meaning they spoke evil of Jesus. So Paul got up and took those who had become believers and went to the hall of Tyrannus. Now commentators have looked pretty extensively into who Tyrannus was and sadly they don't have a whole lot or where the hall was, or what this was, but we know that Paul stayed there for two years. During these two years, Dr. Luke tells us that all of Asia heard of Jesus, both Greeks and Jews. Now, this is once again coming back to the idea that the early church is continuing to expand and grow, and God is doing incredible things using Paul to do it. And nothing will stop the growth of the church. In verse 11 and 12, Dr. Luke tells us that during these two years, God used Paul to perform incredible miracles. He tells us that, that items that Paul had touched or had touched his skin were taken to those who were sick and dying and they were immediately healed. 
This is incredible stuff. But I think it's you know, important for us to see this is not Paul's doing, but instead is God working in and through Paul, and it's not the common practice either. But once again, God is using incredible life-changing miracles to bring evidence to the gospel and to grow his church. Which brings us to our final section of scripture today. If you look back, we'll finish reading our, our, our text for today. Look back with me at verse 13. It says this. Some of the itinerant Jews, Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, adjure you by the, G- by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them. So they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is an incredible end here. And, and one, there's a lot happening. So let's, let's try to understand what's going on here. This final section, we see an example of a confrontation between the power of God and the powers of evil. This section shows false attempts by those not of God to achieve the miraculous. Verses 13 through 20, we see that while Paul was in Ephesus, the hall of Tyrannus, there were some itinerant or traveling Jews that went around casting out demons. We can infer that the word of the power of the name of Jesus and what Paul had been doing by Jesus' power by casting, you know, casting out some demons had obviously gotten out. The sons of Sceva are obviously looking for new ways to cast out demons to try and, try to, and decide to try in the name of Jesus and Paul. The New American Commentary explains a little bit more of the history of these traveling exorcists, and it, it's up on the screen for you. It says this, In the Greco-Roman world, Jewish exorcists were held in high esteem for their venerability of their religion and the strangeness of their Hebrew incantations. Magicians and charlatans were omnipresent in the culture, offering various cures and blessings by their spells and incantations, all for a financial consideration. The more exotic the incantation, the more effective it was deemed to be. So we can understand that the sons of Sceva are trying for a new flavor of casting out demons. And they resort to doing so in the name of Jesus and Paul. They were trying to make more money and decided, well, let's try the name of Jesus and Paul. The sons of Sceva come across one such possessed person. They proceed to try to cast out the demon in the name of Jesus who Paul proclaims in verse 13. The evil spirit through the man replies to the seven sons of Sceva with a frightening but comic reply in verse 15. It says this, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Now this comment by the evil spirit holds so much incredible truth in it. Think about it. This is an evil spirit who knows of Jesus. Scripture is very clear that demons know who Jesus is. Let me walk you through a handful of examples. Luke 4, through 34 says, In the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. He cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. 
Luke 4, 41 says, and the demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God, but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Luke 8, 28 says, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. Finally, James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Satan and his demons know who Jesus is and I love how James 2.19 ends and they shudder. And because of the incredible way that God has chosen to work Paul, chosen to use Paul and work through Paul, this demon also knew Paul. But the sons of Sceva who were using the name of Jesus and Paul for their own financial gain, the demon did not know. Verse 16, in a slightly comic but also, once again, horrifying way, the demon proceeds to jump on and attack the seven sons of Sceva and beats them brutally. So much so that the sons of Sceva escape from the house wounded and devoid of their clothing. That would be an incredibly weird scene, watching them just run down the street. Not sure what's happening. After this incredible scene, we see in verse 17 through 20 that the gospel spreads drastically. The word of who Jesus is and what he's done is just exploding. We see that those who had practiced demonic magic brought their supplies and books to burn and purify themselves from their pagan ways. Verse 20 makes it clear, by, uh, clear why God inspired Dr. Luke to include this amazing story. It says, so the word of the Lord continue to increase and prevail mightily. Verse 20 is the point of this entire passage. Everything that Paul and the disciples were doing was about spreading the name of the Lord. The growth of the church was about increasing the name of the Lord. The proof that God's power was greater than that of the demonic and evil power was about spreading the name of the Lord. I love how the Tyndale New Testament commentary explains verses 13 through 20. It says this. We'll be up on the screen for you. The story, and presumably others like it, became known among both Jews and Greeks in the area. The effect among a superstitious people was to cause both fear and praise for the name of Jesus. In a situation where people were gripped by superstition, perhaps the only way for Christianity to spread was by the demonstration the power of Jesus was superior to that of the demons. Even if those who came to believe in Jesus were tempted to think of his power and person in a way that was still conditioned by their primitive categories of thought, it took time for the church to purify its concepts of God from pagan ways of thinking. A tendency to let our ideas of God be influenced by contemporary and sometimes misleading trends of philosophical and scientific thinking is one that still confronts the church today. I think that's so true. Are we as the church struggling at times with, with trends of philosophical and scientific thinking and these things that are misleading, drawing believers away or confusing believers? On top of that, I, I, I believe this you know, statement is so true, but I, I love as well the ESV commentary speaks the idea that the modern day church does not take demons seriously. Think about movies like Paranormal Activity or The Exorcist or shows like Ghost Hunter that are loved by so many and I don't know why. The obsession with the demonic and paranormal world has caused Christians and non-Christians alike to not take demons seriously. And this passage and the interactions of Sons of Sceva need to remind us that demons in the demonic realm are real and not something for us just to mess with. 
But the hope is, and the truth is, that we as believers need to also remember that just as the demon-possessed man replied to the sons of Sceva with knowing who Jesus was, we need to remember that the spiritual battle has already been won. Jesus has already conquered Satan and his demons. We need not to be afraid because we are safe in Jesus. So, applying this incredible and miraculous passage. There's so much here. So if I can try to whittle it down a little bit. The biggest takeaway from this passage is the miraculous ways that God grew his church and spread the gospel. We see throughout Acts and the rest of the New Testament that pressure would come down and try to destroy the church. Instead of dying, the church would explode and spread. And the name of the Lord and his, and his church would not be stopped which brings us to our part in all of it. Not long ago, I had a chance to read through an incredible book with my high school student leaders. I have a group of several students um, that are high school that help kind of be leaders, and they're awesome and amazing. And we, we meet about once a month and read through books and talk, and it's been great. And one of those books that we read not too long ago was Radical by David Platt. And one story from this book really just stuck out in my brain. Incredible story. Paul writes about many incredible experiences, but the one that I'm going to read today is one where he comes across, you know, a guy living in a third world country and, and how God is spreading his gospel and growing his church. This one's about um, Platt interacting with a guy and a pastor in um, Africa, and it's incredible. Let me read a little bit to you here. It says this. On a scorching November day, I was sitting in the middle of the vast African landscape, sipping hot tea with my friend Bullion. We were surrounded by damaged buildings in a land ravaged by 20 years of civil war. What used to be a thriving community in Sudan was now seared and saddened. Thousands upon thousands of Bullion's brothers and sisters in Christ had died around him, the hands of a Muslim regime. And they were our brothers and sisters too. Bullion had been separated from his family as a child and had grown up in Sudan on his own. But as I looked across at his dark, slender face on that day, I was struck by the contagious smile that shone wherever he spoke. We were talking about how God had worked in Bullion's life and bringing him to trust in Christ when he, had, when he could trust in nothing else. We discussed what God was doing in each of our lives and we talked about the plans God had for us in the future. Middle of that conversation, Bullion lowered the cup of hot tea from his lips, looked me in the eyes and said, David, I'm going to impact the world. An interesting statement. Here was a guy in the African bush with almost no resources. A guy who hadn't seen much of the world beyond the villages that surrounded him. A guy who by all outward appearances did not have much hope of changing his lot in life. Bullion, how are you going to impact the world, I asked. I'm going to make disciples of all nations, he said. So you're going to impact the world by making disciples of all nations. The grin immediately spread across his face. Why not, he asked. Then he went back to sipping his tea. I'll never forget those two words. Why not? I, I think Platt sums up our part in all this perfectly with this incredible story. We know that God will continue to grow his church and spread his gospel. But are we willing to respond like bullion? That we want to make disciples of all nations. And the reason is simply, why not? Bullion hits on this incredible fact. This gospel that has transformed our lives is so miraculous and life-changing that why would we not share it with everyone at every chance we get? 
Why would we not find every way possible to grow God's church and to join God at work? I mean, why not? Orchards, are we joining God in his incredible work? Are we ready to join him wherever he has for us? That is such a big part of what we see in this passage. Paul was ready to be used by God. He went wherever God called him and spread the name of the Lord. Are we as believers doing the same? Are we spreading the name of the Lord and making him known? What are we doing to grow God's ever-growing church? Now, I'm not just referring to OCC. That, that's, that's great. That's a good start. I'm also referring to God's universal church that is made up of believers all around the world. Are we growing the local church that God has put us in? But are we also having a mindset of helping to grow the universal church, supporting and praying and caring and, and even going and helping believers all around the world, spreading the gospel all around the world. We've all been called to be part of, God's, of God spreading the gospel and growing his church. I think it all whittles down to this kind of final question I want to wrap up with. Are we ready to be used by God and to join him at work? Are we? Is that our response? Because God's going to keep going. He's going to keep growing. Are we ready to jump in and join him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Father, we love you and we're just so appreciative for everything you've done in our lives, for the way that you've just changed our lives, for the miraculous way that you have taken our dead heart and breathed life into it. You saved us from sin that just crippled us, that destroyed us. Father, may we love you and, and, and share who you are with everyone we can. May we be like bullying that our, that our simple response is, why not? Where else do we go? What else do we have to do but to share who you are? Why not? Forgive us for the times that we've been resistant or, or hesitant. Father, give us boldness. Help us to fall more in love with you and, and, and want to share who you are with everyone we possibly can. Father, we love you and we thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. If you would like to give to our ministry, please check out our website at lewistonocc.org. And don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to this podcast, as well as our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, so you're always up to date with what's going on here at Orchards Community Church. Take care, and God bless.